Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of abuse that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Anna Fitzgerald stared out her front window, squinting her eyes against the afternoon sun. Her body was tense, every nerve at attention. She scanned the street in front of her house, hoping it would stay empty. If anyone walked by and saw her, she'd be caught. Minutes later, a car arrived. It was her ride. Anna sprung to her feet and rushed to the door, fumbling with the knob. In a moment, she was out. She sprinted across the front walk and slid into the back seat. Her friends were concerned. They tried to ask what was going on. Anna wouldn't say. She just urged them to turn around and drive. Anna twisted in her seat and stared out the rear window, holding her breath. Nobody was following them, yet. Soon, her house was out of sight. Anna let out the breath she'd been holding in. She had escaped, but she still couldn't shake the feeling of dread weighing on her chest. Soon, her friends at Hermes Far Eastern Shining would see that she was gone, and they wouldn't let her go without a fight. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Last week, we met Gerald Hart Attrill. After a spiritual rebirth, he renamed himself Jessa Oh My Heart and dedicated his life to spreading questionable healing practices. Even after his miracle cures were debunked, he gained hundreds of devoted followers. This week, we'll explore how Gerald kept his detractors at bay, fighting off controversy after controversy, all while overseeing a small business empire. We'll have all this and more coming up. Stay with us. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The National Women's Soccer League kicks off March 16th on ION. Out in front to Williams. It's a new Saturday night destination featuring the best players in the world. See the full schedule and find where to watch at IonNWSL.com. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the field. It goes down. Go down in the field. 
21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at fanduel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. By the start of 2003, Jessa Oh My Heart, formerly known as Gerald Hart Attrill, basked in his success. He was the unquestioned leader of a thriving religious community in Eastern Australia that was formerly operating under the banner Infinity Forms of Yellow Remember. He had drawn in several hundred members over the last several years. Most of them lived in a sprawling compound in Tyalgum, working in different ways to support Infinity. Jess's followers were happy to dedicate their lives to him, convinced that he was the manifestation of Jesus Christ and that he alone could bring them to enlightenment. Previously in October of 2002, an Australian court banned Infinity from selling any of their health-promoting products, labeling the business as a scam. But within a few short months, Jessa simply rebranded, establishing a new enterprise called Hermes Far Eastern Shining. His new company operated much like the old one. Jessa continued to recruit followers and sold mystical artifacts that he claimed were filled with divine energy. To avoid trouble with government fair trade organizations, he included disclaimers, caveats about what the products might be able to do. Even still, he promised that his artifacts were filled with incredible power and would likely lead to enlightenment. And beyond that, Jessa made sure his disciples had plenty of other things to occupy them while they waited for this transcendence. Members of Hermes Far Eastern Shining ran several prosperous businesses in Eastern Australia. Jessa's wife, who went by the name Show Me Showers Heaven's Bliss, ran a vast garden and animal sanctuary that is still a tourist destination today. The group also owned two restaurants, Flutterby's Cottage Cafe and Luffley's Cafe. From the outside, these places offered good food, kitschy charm, and rustic ambiance. Patrons didn't realize that a darker underbelly lay beneath the appealing facade. Hermes members were expected to pull their weight at these establishments. According to one member, Anna Fitzgerald, who went by the name Perplexity Swings This and That, Jess's followers regularly worked 16-hour shifts at these Hermes-associated businesses without pay. These long, laborious hours were considered to be part of their service to Jessa and his cause. When they weren't on the job, Jessa Oh My Heart instructed his devotees to keep their minds focused on self-improvement and the constant quest for enlightenment. If they weren't working, they should be praying or meditating, molding their minds to receive divine energy. Only by accepting this energy into their bodies could they leave what Jessa called the hellish red realm, where most of humanity resides, and enter the yellow realm, reserved for those who found enlightenment. This meant that every moment of every day was devoted to Jessa in some form. It's a fairly common tactic used by cult leaders to keep their followers compliant and more susceptible to their influence. Vanessa is going to take over in the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. In 1982, the New York Times interviewed psychoanalyst Stanley H. Kath, who emphasized how cult practices can psychologically affect the cult's adherents. Dr. Kath stated, 
Keeping devotees constantly fatigued, deprived of sensory input, and suffering protein deprivation, working extremely long hours in street solicitation, or in cult-owned businesses, engaging in monotonous chanting and rhythmical singing, may induce psychophysiological changes in the brain. In the same article, psychiatrist John G. Clark Jr. remarked, they keep the mark involved in group ecstatic activities or use meditation, obsessive praying, constant lecturing or preaching, or lack of sleep to maintain the mind in a constantly debilitated state. In this debilitated state, members like Perplexity were likely in no position to question Jess's leadership. They were probably too mentally and physically exhausted to resist him or consider anything other than the pursuit of enlightenment. But while Jessa had secured the loyalty of his followers, he still had to contend with public opinion. One of Jessa's most vocal critics was a local politician from Tasmania, an alderman named Ron Christie. Ron became familiar with the group through his ex-partner, Salsa Headrock Jr., who was a member. After losing Salsa to the group, Ron launched a campaign to raise awareness about the cult's spread. Salsa called his criticism a witch hunt and accused him of vindictiveness following their breakup. But Ron insisted that he was battling for the good of the public. Likely at Jess's urging, in 2004, Salsa filed a restraining order against Ron after he distributed letters to the public warning of the cult's presence and calling Salsa out by name. Salsa argued that Ron Christie's accusations were hurting her reputation. She claimed that she wasn't a member, she merely bought and used the group's products. Of course, this didn't quite add up, considering her name change and claims from her former patients that she had actively tried to sell them products or recruit them to the sect. Nevertheless, the court accepted her request and ordered Ron Christie not to publish any material linking Salsa to the cult. Ron agreed to leave Salsa's name out of his letters. However, he refused to give up his mission. His attorney said he will still continue in his public duty in relation to the cult. And Ron wasn't the only one shining a light on the cult's activities. In February of 2006, the nationally televised TCN Channel 9 news program, A Current Affair, aired their months-long investigation into the group. A producer for the show, identified as Lisa, went undercover. She pretended to be a victim of domestic violence who felt lost and in need of guidance. Lisa said that the group offered her salvation, but it came at a cost. They pushed several products on her, pressuring her into spending hundreds of dollars. By the end of the investigation, she had purchased a personalized pendant blessed by Jessa Oh My Heart. Hermes members also sold her four stickers meant to be placed on her cell phone. They cost more than $50, but Hermes representatives justified the exorbitant price as vital protection against the phone's harmful rays. Beyond the producer's investigation into the group's products and practices, the show also included several interviews, including one with Alderman Christie. He'd made good on his promise to fight against the group. On the national broadcast, Ron accused Jessa Oh My Heart of being a con man and a trickster. He said that Jessa deserved to be in prison, remarking, the day he's behind bars will be a day when not only me, but thousands of people and families around this country would be very, very happy and pleased to see. When Jessa Oh My Heart heard about the broadcast, he erupted. He had endured Ron Christie's criticisms for over five years, but with more media scrutiny on him than ever, Jessa finally had enough. He decided it was time to stop the alderman's attacks 
once and for all. Up next, Jessa Oh My Heart confronts his enemy. Wayne Simmons spent 27 years undercover for the CIA. When he retired from spy work, he got a big break. Terrorism analyst on Fox News. Then he met Kent Clisby. So I'm a real CIA guy. This is total nonsense. I'm Alex French, and I'm here to figure out who's telling the truth. Was Wayne Simmons a spy, or was he nothing but a con man? Imposters is a Spotify original from Parcast and premieres Monday, May 3rd. Follow and listen exclusively on Spotify. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Now back to the story. A decade after founding his group, Jessa Oh My Heart enjoyed his success as the leader of a secretive sect called Hermes Far Eastern Shining. But for all the power he wielded within his small community of devotees, he had a much harder time controlling what outsiders said about him. In February of 2006, Australian broadcaster Channel 9 aired an expose on the group. The show included an interview with Hobart Alderman Ron Christie, a vocal opponent of Jessa Oh My Heart. In response, Jessa filed the defamation suit against Alderman Christie. However, the floodgates had already opened. In the same month as the TCN expose, ABC News Radio Australia aired an interview with a woman named Nicola Shaw on a spirituality program called The Spirit of Things. Nicola was a former member who had lived on one of their compounds on and off since 1998 and adopted the name Soon Gathers Delight. In her interview with ABC Australia, Nicola described Hermes' practice of sleep deprivation, labor exploitation, and manipulation. She, like other former members, also spoke of being coerced into having sex with Jessa. In the interview, she said, when you see Jessa, you might feel amazing. You might feel like you're with God himself, but there's no real healing. There's no real change other than if you're in his presence. And really, when you look at it, this man is built up to be God himself. With these shocking stories making national news, local journalists delved further. In June of 2006, a New South Wales local paper, the Tweed Daily News, began their own investigation into the sect. In the series of articles, reporters scrutinized the sect's history of selling empowered products. Hermes may have added disclaimers to their website, but they still heavily implied that their artifacts could achieve miraculous results like the coasters they claimed had the power to energize cups of water placed on them. With this renewed public attention on Hermes' strange line of products, the government once again took an interest in Jessa's activities. The New South Wales Department of Fair Trading noticed that the group seemed to have fallen back into their old habits. In an interview with the Tweed Daily News, Diane Beamer, the New South Wales Minister for Fair Trading, acknowledged that a second investigation might be warranted. She remarked, to suggest a coaster empowers a glass of water is completely unbelievable. As the scrutiny intensified, Jessa and his followers launched a proactive response. While before, Jessa had worked to find loopholes to beat the system, this time he had an important tool in his arsenal to fight back, the power of public opinion. 
Since opening their successful cafes and gardens, Hermes have built up goodwill in the community. While their older businesses kept getting them into trouble, their new businesses granted them some cover. One of Jess's followers, a man named Wadin Kurar, went to work garnering support for Hermes among prominent townspeople, hosting a breakfast. The invite list included a former member of New South Wales Parliament, a former mayor, Murwillumbah's business chamber secretary, and other community leaders. If nothing else, the breakfast served as a reminder that Hermes-owned businesses were important fixtures in the area. They brought in tourists and helped drive up commerce at nearby establishments. Community leaders seemed happy to lend their support to Hermes, turning a blind eye to the allegations against Jessa. In their view, Hermes did far more good than harm to the community. Following Jessa's PR blitz, the Merwillemba and District Business Chamber President, Phil Youngblood, issued a statement championing Hermes. He commented, They have been no problem, and it's not up to us as a chamber to presume to judge people. They have made considerable contributions to local charities, the last being $9,000 to the art gallery. If it's later proved they are doing things that are unlawful, that's a different matter. Jess's campaign to silence criticism was going as well as he could have hoped for, and soon he counted another victory under his belt. In November of 2007, Jess's defamation lawsuit against Alderman Ron Christie went to trial. At the hearing, Jessa described how deeply TCN's broadcast and Christie's television appearance in particular had affected him. He was riddled with anxiety and worried about mob mentality. He said that after the broadcast, he had to deal with extra attention. People were questioning him, asking him if the reports were true or gossiping behind his back. He told the court that he could no longer enjoy going out in public, saying, I didn't want to be looked at, stared at, muttered about things like that. He was particularly hurt by Christie calling him a criminal, saying that this was the worst thing a person could say about another. Jessa even claimed that since the program aired, he'd had trouble sleeping. On the stand, his wife said that the strain grew so great that he sought medical attention. Jessa wanted to make sure he came across as a sympathetic figure to the judge, but he may have had other motivations as well. Like many cult leaders, he benefited from painting himself as an outsider persecuted by the public. This was another tactic he could use to draw his followers even closer to him. According to Edward Hinson, professor emeritus of religion at Liberty University, a persecution complex feeds the paranoia of most cults. They develop the mentality that people hate us because we're different. Cults expect persecution and often invite it. This mentality that believes we alone are right eventually gives way to uncritical allegiance to leadership. Soon, all disagreement is looked upon as disloyalty and a threat to the purity of the movement. Persecution complex or not, Jessa's argument succeeded. In December 2007, Jessa won his case, and the courts ordered Ron Christie to pay him 110,000 Australian dollars in damages. Not only had Jessa triumphed over his enemies again, but now he had a new intimidation tactic for anyone who dared question him. He knew that with the threat of a lawsuit hanging over their heads, his critics would think twice before mounting any campaigns against him. 
After the lawsuit, things seemed to return to normal for Jessa and his followers. Media attention died down, and the New South Wales Minister for Fair Trading apparently backed away from investigating Hermes. The group went back to the business of running their cafes and gardens, and selling Jessa's mystical products and protective objects. They also kept at their recruitment efforts, with members appearing at New Age festivals, concerts, and college campuses. They also increased their presence online to draw in even more people. In the late 2000s, they quickly adopted social media as a tool to spread their message, sell their products, and find new followers. The Hermes Facebook group thrived. They leveraged the new technology to build a hub for anyone interested in spiritualism and New Age religion. Here, thousands of interested parties found out about workshops, seminars, and events. Jessa even worked on further honing his message and published a text of his collected writings entitled The Will of God is the Obligation to Love. The book was meant to immortalize Jessa's wisdom for all the world to see. But even as he built himself up as a spiritual scholar, Jessa didn't forget the early roots of his awakening. The American spiritual leader Adi Da had been one of Jessa's earliest and most important influences, and Jessa continued pushing his followers to read Adi Da's texts as well as his own. When Adi Da died in 2008, the Hermes group honored him with a vigil. They lit candles, knelt, and kissed the ground in front of his picture. For Jessa, the loss of Adi Da was a tragic event. But Jessa didn't want his former mentor to be forgotten, so he furthered his agenda to pass on Adi's teachings. By pushing Adi Da's words to his followers, Jessa thought he was helping them find enlightenment. Instead, this seeded doubts that would cause one of Jessa's devotees to turn her back on him forever. And it became one of his last acts as the leader of Hermes Far Eastern Shining. Up next, a Hermes member escapes, and Jessa meets his end. Now back to the story. By 2008, Australian spiritual leader Jessa Oh My Heart was living his golden years in comfort and privilege. He'd made a fortune selling blessed healing products and magic potions to any interested buyer. He also secured the loyalty of hundreds of devoted followers, several of whom resided in the rural village of Tyalgum. One of these members was a woman named Anna Fitzgerald. At the time, she called herself Perplexity Swings This and That. Perplexity had joined the group in the early aughts after encountering a few Hermes representatives at a body-spirit festival in London. She moved to Australia and, for around seven years, gave herself fully to their cause. But by 2011, her faith appeared shaken. One of the first cracks came when she saw how Jessa aggressively pushed the teachings of American guru Adi Da. She had just recently been gifted a new laptop from her sister, and Perplexity took advantage of this connection to the outside world. She began searching for more information about Adi Da online. What she discovered horrified her. In the 1980s, several former members of Adi Da's group accused the religious leader of subjecting them to psychological, sexual, and physical abuse. Eventually, Adi Da settled several lawsuits out of court, then left the United States. He and some of his closest followers moved to a commune in Fiji. Adi Da remained there until his death 25 years later. Perplexity was shocked. 
Adi Da was Jessa's mentor and spiritual teacher. How could a holy man like Jessa Oh My Heart revere a figure who had caused so much harm? And once Perplexity noticed these hypocrisies, she began to question everything. It occurred to her that, as much as Jessa promised wisdom and enlightenment, nobody ever seemed better off or any happier. Perplexity struggled with showing devotion to Jessa. By then, he was 70 and becoming more reclusive, and it seems his health was on the decline. He hardly resembled the powerful divine incarnate he claimed to be. Eventually, Perplexity decided it was time to get out. She'd arrived at the point most cult members eventually reach, though not without difficulty. According to cult expert Dr. Margaret Thaler Singer, many in cults do eventually leave them for reasons similar to perplexities, though it might take years to come to that conclusion. In Singer's book, Cults in Our Midst, she writes that many cult members can become disillusioned, fed up, or burnt out, or they realize the cult is not what it said it was. The contradictions simply become too glaring and can no longer be ignored. However, Singer also acknowledged the inherent difficulty in breaking away. Fear and pressure keep members bound to the cult's influence, sometimes for years. Isolation also plays a key role. If members have no one to help them on the outside, leaving can feel impossible. Perplexity had already given seven years of her life and all of her money to Hermes, and she couldn't bear the thought of staying any longer. But she faced a daunting challenge. She knew that the others would try to stop her if she revealed her intentions. When she considered the idea of taking some time away from the compound in Tyalgum and started looking at apartments, Jessa's wife, Shomi, suggested that Perplexity could stay in one of the other properties owned by Hermes. Shomi even said, Don't worry, even if we have to put you in a shipping container, we'll find you a place. After Shomi discouraged her from leaving, Perplexity was more certain than ever that Hermes' leaders would do everything in their power to keep her in their clutches. She needed help, but her family was far away in Ireland. She felt helpless. With limited options, she did the only thing she could think of. She telephoned two shopkeepers in town, Ken McGrath and Anita DeLue. Perplexity often saw them in town and had formed friendly relationships with them. On the phone, she begged for their help. But her shopkeeper friends left for her house right away. When they arrived, Perplexity raced to their car. Luckily, no other members saw her leave. Her friends drove her about 33 miles east to the coast. Perplexity then laid low at a hotel in Kulangata until her family could send her money in October of 2011. From there, she restarted her life. She remained in Australia, but found a new city away from Hermes's gaze. There, she reclaimed her old name, Anna Fitzgerald. Finally, she was free of the cult that had reigned over her life for nearly a decade. It's unclear whether Jessa felt anger or fear at Anna's departure. Likely, he wasn't in any condition to worry about it. At that point, Jessa's health problems seemed to have grown more severe. Then, in December of 2012, Jessa Oh My Heart died of a suspected stroke at 72 years old. For escaped Hermes members and their families, the news was likely bittersweet. Some had tried for years to expose Jessa's abusive tactics and hoped to see some kind of justice. Now, that chance vanished. He was surely mourned by his many followers who revered his life's work. 
And if Jess's demise left them with any questions of how he could have succumbed to illness when he claimed to have access to miracle health elixirs, they kept their doubts a secret. Perhaps they believed Jessa voluntarily moved to a better plane of existence, or that he had planned this outcome all along. In any case, death didn't mean the end of Jessa's philosophy. Even without their alchemist, they continued their mission to spread his word and sell his empowered artifacts. It's not clear who took over the mantle of transmuting these objects into holy artifacts, but Jessa's wife, Shomi Shower's Heaven's Bliss, likely stepped into his old role. Unfortunately, even after Jess's death, many of the cult's more dubious practices remained in place. One member, a woman named Jackie Gate, described how she fell in with the group. After answering an ad for a job at Flutterby's Cafe, Jackie and her boyfriend left their home in Bondi and traveled 500 miles north to Dialgum. There, they lived in a Hermes owned property and were paid $150 per week. She said the group initially seemed friendly and she felt safe with them. But that all changed in 2015 when she became pregnant. The Hermes members tried to drive a wedge between Jackie and her boyfriend, perhaps in an attempt to isolate her and make her dependent on Hermes. They told Jackie, you don't need him. We will help you raise your baby as one of us. Don't rely on a man for help. The sudden shift made Jackie rethink the group entirely. She told Hermes she had to leave the country for a funeral, then made a quick escape back to her home in Sydney. She later said, I stumbled across something I thought looked wonderful, but felt dark. A year after Jackie escaped, Hermes was once again thrust into the spotlight. In October of 2016, Sydney's Daily Telegraph published an interview with Anna Fitzgerald in which she discussed her 2011 escape. Other outlets followed up with their own stories, speaking with former members. The media coverage again caused public officials to take notice. One former senator for South Australia, Nick Xenophon, urged the government to do more to stop Hermes. He hoped that Australia would establish a special law enforcement agency specifically designed to target groups that use psychological pressure on its members, but the government was slow to act. The senator lamented, the damage these groups can do is immeasurable. It was a familiar position for Hermes. They were again facing heightened scrutiny. Only now, they didn't have their leader Jessa to protect them. Salsa Headrock Jr., who'd risen to the level of director of the Hermes Far Eastern Shining Company, now spoke on behalf of the group. She called former members like Anna and Jackie disgruntled and accused them of lying. But with years of experience facing criticism from the media and government, Hermes members had seemingly discovered just how to defuse it. They'd learned from Jessa, who had deftly played the victim during his defamation case. A spokesperson for Hermes released a pitiable statement, saying, Over the past 10 years, Hermes Far Eastern Shining has been attacked by several Australian media outlets. This has been terrible at times to endure, as individuals and as a business. The manager of Flutterby's Cottage Cafe, Hay Neil Medinet, also took to Facebook to decry the news reports. She never clarified her ties to Hermes, and she didn't even mention the group by name. However, she insisted, Flutterbys is not owned by a cult, it is owned by an individual. Her post garnered more than 200 likes and dozens of supportive comments. The news channel's social media pages were also flooded with negative comments defending the cafe. Among those who leaped to Hermes' defense was Brad Sims, the founder and operator of a tourism company called Discover Tyalgum. 
Sims chastised the media frenzy and said they completely fabricated a village-run-by-cult story for ratings and couldn't care less about all the little retailers, cafes, and shops making out a living from tourists on the weekend. Both Mr. Sims and Hermes members threatened legal action, though it's unclear whether any lawsuit went forward. Even without legal action, the whole affair proved how, once again, Hermes was able to manipulate public opinion for its aims, even among outsiders. For as long as its businesses, like Flutterbys, remain popular fixtures in their communities, Hermes continues to wield considerable influence. The money they bring into the town seems to be enough to make many turn a blind eye. As for Hermes followers themselves, there's little sign that any news reports or exposés dissuaded them from their cause. Even now, they continue to sell their healing jewelry, coasters, protective potions, and energized products for thousands of dollars. They have an active Facebook page with nearly 7,000 followers, and they continue to maintain their website and blog. As of now, there are Hermes distributors located all around the world, and apparently enough demand to make a profit. After watching Jessa operate for decades, Hermes leaders know that for people who are suffering, confused, and looking for answers, no price is too steep to reach enlightenment. Thanks again for tuning into Cults. We'll be back next Tuesday with another episode. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cults is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Nick Johnson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Cults was written by Christina Pamies, with writing assistance by Robert Tyler Walker, fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood. Cults stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson.